Welcome to WTTS In Conversation, supported by Technology Recyclers. I'm Matt Pelser. This is our bi-weekly podcast where we share recent conversations with the artists of today, as well as three decades of exclusive WTTS interviews. October 7th, 2021 marks a significant birthday in Indiana and in rock and roll. John Mellencamp turns 70. His impact on music and the Hoosier State can't be overstated. And in 2008, Paul Mendenhall got to spend a full hour with him in his art studio to talk about his career. From the big hits to his personal favorites, John Mellencamp generously reflected on his music and offered some signature commentary on the state of things. And he wasn't shy when Paul went all the way back to the beginning. I had just driven back from New York and I was sitting in my little apartment in Seymour and I got a phone call and the guy says, hey, we want you to come and we want to talk to you about managing you and, uh, and uh, that's how the whole Johnny Cougar thing started. And now, WTTS In Conversation with John Mellencamp. Well, first of all, thanks very much for having me here. And uh, we're here at John's art studio just out, out off Lake Monroe here in Monroe County. And uh, boy, your paintings, uh, that's one of yours over there, right? Yeah, all the paintings in here are mine. Uh, this isn't very many. I have hundreds of paintings stored downstairs. That's what the whole downstairs is, is paintings just about. So, uh, you know, I work on a painting. I, you know, I paint, uh, I'll go through stages where I'll paint for like three or four months straight, paint for eight, nine, ten hours a day, and then uh, I won't paint for three or four months. And I'm in a non-painting mode right now. What's the, uh, what's the big, greater form of release for you, the music or the painting? Well, actually, I think I'm a better painter than I am a songwriter. <laughs> there might be some people out there that agree with that. I, I don't know. I think it's both the same. But, you know, both are, are different. You know, painting is more solitary and more uh, individual, where uh, making records is more a collaborative effort. Well, first of all, i got to explain that I'm coming uh, at you here as a pretty substantial fan. I mean, um, your music's really meant a lot to me. Uh, Cherry Bomb was my uh, wedding song. You know, I imagine a lot of people have told you that. I did notice the other day, too, that uh, one of the, the historical events in our morning prep was that it was yesterday, I think, that both of your songs, Jack and Diane and Hurt So Good, were in the top ten at the same time. At the same time, you had the number one album, and you're the only male artist, um, I guess, in Billboard history to, to accomplish that. So that's pretty significant. I think that uh, John Lennon also had that same thing. Uh, I did, was that yesterday? Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yesterday, yesterday, yes, yesterday yeah. 30 years ago. Um, yeah, almost 26. I think it was 82. Yep. So when did you first realize that you'd made it as a rock star? Uh, you know, I never have those thoughts. I never think about, you know, uh, that type of... Uh, rock stardom or I I'm always dealing with what's in front of me I very rarely look back I very like you know you bringing up Jack and Diane and Hurt So Good it never occurred to me or dawned on me that I don't even know what time of year that happened you know I know that it happened but I don't think about it much and uh, so <clears throat> I don't know I uh, I remember the first time I can answer that question by remembering the first time that I had a a big hit record. I remember uh, walking out on the front porch over on my other house on 446 and just laughing about it. But other than that, you know, I don't think much about that kind of stuff. Uh, being a rock star, I don't particularly, uh, never have been comfortable with that, never have. It's always embarrassed me uh, to be treated uh, in that fashion or to be thought of in that fashion. Because, you know, rock stardom has certain uh, connotations that uh, go along with it and if you are part of the people who tend to pigeonhole people well you know he's this and he's that and it means a lot of different things so I just really am not too bothered with it and I guess I heard a little of the uh, your life is now philosophy creeping out there you don't pay too much attention to the past and very much in the moment well, I try to uh, look forward to uh, songs to sing and performances to play and paintings to paint and children to raise and uh, and charities to do and uh, try to uh, focus my thoughts on 
what's above me and in front of me and not so much what's below me or behind me. When music, you were, I, I think, you know, you never, you, you never really followed a trend and you were very uh, maverick, experimental, and I think, uh, like, for example, putting the, the fiddle and the accordion, among other instruments in your music, really kind of made it stand out. Um, why, whatever inspired you to, to try to put an accordion, for example, in rock music? The accordion, uh, I had a piano player and an accordion player named John Casella, uh, who uh, was excellent on the accordion and uh, could do things with that instrument that I didn't know were possible. So when you have that kind of talent sitting there, it seemed uh, foolhardy not to use it. I mean, uh, John didn't particularly like playing the uh, organ, I mean, the accordion very much, but he was fantastic at it, and, and he could really make the thing uh, speak. And uh, so knowing that we had that in our arsenal of colors to add to a song, uh, I think that's where it came from. It was like, well, this guy's great at it. Let's use it. Yeah. yeah. Well, at WTTS, I've, I've been able to follow your career you know, very closely. Cause How long we're, have you been there? Uh, seven years. Oh, great. Yeah, so we're, we're always all over your songs, and it's added to our success or the uh, degree of success that we've realized uh, there quite a bit. And, you know, the thing that strikes me, and I'm not just saying this, I really think that some of your best work has come in the last decade, and I would cite, you know, on a personal level, you know, Peaceful World was just an amazingly outstanding song, and then actually there was a track that got a little bit of airplay, off your previous album, uh, Heaven is a Lonely Place. And I thought, man, that is a, that's a killer rock rift. Uh, but yet there's people that are our age, and I'm about your age, um, that I, I think, you know, they quit listening to the radio back with Jack and Diane, or they, they got comfortable with the oldies. Is that frustrating to you that a lot of people that started out and bought millions of your records now have, are just not that involved with music? Well, I don't... Uh I don't really think it's the people. I think it's our culture. Uh, our culture is the, not uh, the same culture that you and I grew up in. Uh, you and I, uh, if you are close to my age, which I doubt you are, but uh, you know, the baby boomers, uh, we made quite a noise uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, and then we continued to mess up this country. Uh, our generation has been a terrible generation. We've done a lot of good things, but if you look at where we're at now and the people that we've elected, uh, I just think it's the culture. I mean, the culture is interested in uh, music that is coming from um, Disneyland. I mean, think about that. The Jonas Brothers from Disneyland. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of these young people that are on the radio now are Annette Funicello. Uh, whereas I grew up playing at the Bluebird. I mean, that was my uh, entrance into the music business, playing places like the Bluebird, uh, playing places like Jake's, playing in bars, fraternities, sororities, you know, walking out and playing in front of six people in Liverpool to playing in front of, you know, thousands and thousands of people in Sydney, Australia. So I've, I've been fortunate enough to have play and have the entire gamut but you know with the invention of uh, uh, buying songs for a dollar off the internet uh, has taken away the art of uh, and the desire of the general public to experience buying an album or buying a CD and uh, spending an evening with it you know it's more about well I like that song and for a dollar I can have that song and uh, mm -hmm. uh, it's just uh, Mac Entertainment. So, am I frustrated by it? Sure, you know, I mean, uh, uh, I'm like everybody else. I like change, but uh, I liked it when uh, rock was important and folk was important and people uh, viewed it as important as opposed to disposable and uh, not so important in our culture today. But everybody still loves music. Don't get me wrong, they still love mm -hmm. music. It's just the way that we consume music and uh, and listen to music that's changed. I saw uh, Rolling Stone magazine, I think it was the same issue or close to it that you were in recently. Uh, they were talking to Steve Miller, and Steve has not put out a piece of new music for 25 years. Right. 
And he said he, he just couldn't put something out and not have it sell a million million. But you keep going and going, and, and you seem like you still have a lot to say. How do you how do you maintain that passion? I mean, it just doesn't seem to me like you ever have uh, you know gotten tired of it. Well, it's not a matter of getting tired of it. It's a matter of uh, of of challenging yourself and trying to stay current. And you know, the fact that I did sell millions of records uh, really was an accident. It wasn't my goal. Uh, my first record sold uh, 15,000 copies worldwide, and I uh, felt that it was, I was fortunate to be able to make another record. Uh, the fact that they ended up selling millions of copies uh, was a stroke of luck, being at the right place at the right time, having the right song at the right time. So it never was for me about selling millions of records, although I do understand what Steve Miller's saying. I, I get that. Uh, and it is frustrating. Um, to work so hard on a record and you know it, it, uh, these records do take a lot of time and a lot of thought and uh, mm -hmm. uh, it's <coughs> frustrating to uh, <clears throat> make a record and have it sell uh, not the numbers that you used to but it's not really the point the point is is the, the message you know I feel very fortunate that I have been able to put songs in the air that people sing and uh, my quest is, is to continue to challenge myself as a songwriter and continue to challenge uh, uh, the audience uh, as listeners, and, uh, and together we, uh, we, we, we move on. Well, uh, then, too, you've used, been utilizing the new technology in a, in a very casual video presentation that's on, is it on your YouTube or is it on your website, the, the, the Dylan cover? You're just sitting there. Uh, by the way, the glasses look, that's a good look for you. Um, well, I have to wear the glasses or I can't see. <laughs> that's what, uh, oh, who is that uh, girl that Lisa Loeb told me? I, I'm, not like, I'm not like Sarah, what's her name? It's not a cosmetic yeah. Uh, yeah. part of my acting career. It's just like, you know, I, I didn't know all the lyrics, so I had to occasionally drop down and, and uh, read the lyrics, and I had to have the glasses. Yeah, but that's a pretty cool thing, because you can just do that when... The mood hits you, and, and uh, the mood. Uh, actually, a, a friend of mine called me up and said, "John, you need to record the times are changing." And I said, "Yeah, I get that, but I don't want to go." In. He said, "Just do it on just it was somebody else's idea. Just just do it on your uh, on your computer." I said, "Okay, I can do that." So I went in and clicked it, you know, played it, and it was done in in ten minutes. <laughs> That's really cool, you know. And you're you're staying here in Indiana is really. I think it's been great for us. I mean, I'm a lifelong Hoosier, and we all take a pride in that, and you've always been there every time we open a new stadium or somebody won a big game or something like that. John Mellencamp's always been there to help us celebrate. But how's it been for you? I mean, you still uh, enjoy living here? Yeah, I mean, I, I still live here. Sometimes I, you know, I'm fortunate enough I... I get to go all over the world, and sometimes I come back from exotic places, and I come back, and it's rain, and it's real cold, and yeah. I, I kind of look and go, what do we live here for? <laughs> you know, why do we keep coming back here? But, uh, you know, I got to tell you, everything is not as it seems. I'm sure there are people here that resent the fact that I'm here, don't like the idea, they don't like to pick up the newspaper and see my name in it. I'm sure there are people uh, like that, uh, and I understand that. I understand that. Uh, I know that in Memphis they didn't like Elvis, <laughs> you know. Oh yeah, sure, get get this place out of here, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm not comparing myself to Elvis in any fashion, no. but I'm just saying that, uh, you know, being uh, a local guy and and staying here is, you know, questioned by some people. Why why would he do that? I wouldn't do that if I had the opportunity. I'd be out of here, mm -hmm. but I just never looked at it that way. I um, I thought it would always. Uh, uh, affect my songwriting if I lived in a city. Uh, I like the fact that uh, I'm able to view small town life mm -hmm. uh, and be part of it in some fashion. And uh, and generally, uh, I like the people. Uh, although uh, there have been times in the recent past when I kind of thought uh, we had lost our way a little bit in our politics. Uh, and I'm sure people would disagree with that. But, you know, when I came out against the war, it wasn't pleasant around here mm -hmm. because people were hassling me, hassling my wife. They weren't hassling me so much because they know I'd punch them in the nose. But uh, uh, but they would hassle Elaine, and they had, we had to put security around our kids' school. And, you know, so it was, it was kind of odd. 
mm. an odd time. Uh, but generally, people are very polite to me and respectful, and uh, uh, everybody knows I'm grumpy, so uh, <laughs> that's the way it works. That's good. You know, that's, that's, that's true, too. I think one thing that's kept your music, I mean, if I can theorize here, uh, so vibrant and so good, is that you, you have, I think, I didn't know you way back when, but I'm assuming mellowed some, but you're not, you're not all mellowed out. You've got, you got a lot of passion. I mean, you still carry that, and, you, and everybody knows that if they bother you, you might punch them in the nose. I mean, I think that kind of keeps it going, don't you? Well, I was with uh, Nora Guthrie the other day, and that's uh, Woody Guthrie's daughter and Arlo Guthrie's sister. And this was like three days ago in New York, and she's in my hotel room. We were talking about Bob Dylan. And she said that she was at a dinner the other night, and Bob was there, and Bob wasn't speaking to anybody. And uh, some people started complaining about, well, there's Bob Dylan, he's not talking to anybody. And she looked at him and said, Bob's not here to talk to you. Bob's here to write Blowing in the Wind. Bob's here to write The Times They Are Changing. Mm -hmm. If you expect Bob to come here and talk to you, then don't, ex don't sing those songs. And I kind of feel the same way. I'm not really here for your entertainment. Yeah. I mean, I'm here to write songs. I'm here to uh, help the community if I can. And if you catch me and I'm grumpy, well, that's who I am. You know, uh, uh, I was grumpy before I made records. <laughs> you know, uh, people that knew me in college uh, knew that I was grumpy even then, and I was mm -hmm. grumpy in high school. And, you know, so that's just the way it is, you know. That's my personality. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you about, because, you know, there's always, uh, you know, Mellencamp sightings are legendary. Uh, you know, around the Bloomington area, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. You know, you, you hear around the water cooler, or we were out shopping at the College Mall, and we ran into, saw John and Elaine. How, how do you, I guess it just depends on your mood, how you handle that at the time, or? Well, generally, I think that I'm, uh, and you're right, the older I've gotten, the more, uh, uh, equipped I've become to uh, to uh, be a nicer guy to people uh, and uh, you know there's been a lot of guys my age I, I've become uh, friends with Elvis Costello who you know when he was a kid was pretty grumpy <laughs> but n now he's a great guy you know and so I, I kind of look at guys my age that were considered grumpy and and I think we're all kind of growing up a little bit and uh, accepting our uh, responsibility as, as being more, uh, I don't know what's the word, more part of the community, I suppose, mm -hmm. uh, than just being uh, off to ourselves. Yeah, you mentioned Elvis Costello. I, I, I wasn't aware of that, but uh, you know, I know you got your farm aid friends that uh, you hang with every year. Are there any other other artists out there that you have a uh, uh, relationship with or that you you admire as an artist? Well, T-Bone Burnett and I have become really good friends. Uh, we talk every week and, you know, we have a, a nice relationship and we go places together and, and talk about music. It's, uh, it's good to have a, uh, a musical friend and see Elvis is a friend of T-Bone, so that's how I became friends, friendly with him. But, you know, yeah, I know a lot of guys, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen a lot of guys yeah. around. Yeah, I guess uh, Elaine came up and, and did the show with me a couple of times. And uh, she said that when T-Bone was here, you guys took the kids out water skiing and taught, actually taught uh, T-Bone's kids how to, how to ski. And he was real impressed with it here. Oh, uh, yeah, he, uh, he loved it. I mean, Henry's like me. He's pretty much of a hermit. And he doesn't like to leave the studio or his house unless he has to. Uh, matter of fact, this tour that he did with, uh, with Plant Krauss was the first time that he had been on the road in 20 years. So, you know, for him to leave his, his home and go out on tour was quite a, uh, quite a, uh, a deal for, for Henry. Um, it's kind of a random question, I guess, at this point, but um, what, are, what are some of your, your personal favorites in your catalog? I know, I know you don't dwell on the past too much, but things that, as, as you look back over your catalog that you're particularly proud of, hey, I wrote this, or this, this was an exceptionally good performance, Anything jump out at you? Well, you know, I've been very fortunate to have a lot of uh, hit records. And there's a danger to having too many hit records. And the danger is is that when you stop thinking in that, li in that line, like, uh, uh, <clears throat> you know, with Life, Death, Love, and Freedom, writing a, a pop hit record was not 
even discussed. The songs were what they were. Uh, but, you know, for so many years in my career, the first, I would deliver a record to the record company and they'd go, what's the single? That, they'd, you know, that's all they cared about. What's going to be the hit? Uh, so there's a danger to that in that you become part of the general public. Everybody knows Jack and Diane. It's part of the general public, and I'm grateful for that. But at the same time, it's funny to have people come up and talk to me about that song because it's 30 years ago, right? And they talk to me as if it's a brand new song. As if it's just been discovered. So what happens then is that songs like Between a Laugh and a Tear, which was on Scarecrow, nobody talks to me about, which is actually a, probably a better song than Jack and Diane. Or they don't talk to you about uh, The Full Catastrophe of Life, which was on another record that I made for Columbia. Uh, and those songs seem to uh, resonate more with me personally than some of these big hit records. And don't forget, I didn't even want to put R.O.C.K. in the USA on, the, on a record. Mm -hmm. I, I had to be talked into it. I didn't want to put Jack and Diane on an album. Uh, I thought they were too, uh, too light. But, you know, when you deal with the general public, I don't think you're allowed to get too heavy, although I've been very successful at having songs that kind of snuck in the back door. You know, if you listen to the lyrical content of like a song like, I don't know, Pink Houses, it's saying something other than raw, raw America. But when you hear, ain't that America, you know, people think, oh, yeah. And so they respond to that, that USA mentality. U mm -hmm. USA, USA, yeah, you know. Yeah. So it's a, it's a kind of a, a double-edged sword. Uh, but don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, that, that kind of brings out something else I wanted to uh, get your thoughts on. And I thought Rolling Stone really kind of hit the nail on the head with describing your music as portraying maybe the darker underbelly of the Midwest. I mean, we think of the Bible Belt and the conservative values as, as being representative of the, mid, of the Midwest. But somewhere down below that, your, your songs through the past have dealt with, uh, you know, layoffs and farm strife and drug abuse, even that, that sort of thing that happens. And you've just nailed it every time. And how have you, how have you had such a good channel into that feeling of the, the darker side of, of Indiana or Midwest life? Well, on Life, Death, Love, and Freedom, all those songs are written in about 10, 12 days, uh, which is fantastic if you can do it. Uh, I haven't been able to do that very often, where you can actually just get up every morning and stay focused on, on a topic matter, life, death, love, and freedom. Uh, that was uh, from the Great American Songbook. Uh, the songs that were written in the 30s and the 40s were about those topics. But now today, you know... Uh, uh, pop music doesn't really touch on those topics very much. So a lot of people will say, oh, this is a dark record. No, this is a record about life, and life is beautiful. See, that's, they just don't take it to the next step. They just go, oh, this is, this is stuff that I don't really want to discuss. In their private moments, I'm sure they're thinking about uh, the shortcomings of this country or the shortcomings of their own uh, their own selves or uh, 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 what they dreamed they would be and what they became uh, most generally are two different things and I believe that people quit everything too early and I've said that I've said it already today and I'm saying it again people give up on things too early they just quit and so I think that the, we find ourselves in a very peculiar situation in this country right now because while the liberals I'm way off topic here. No, that's all right. <laughs> you because, know. The, because the liberals have spent the last 20 years worrying about handicapped parking while the conservatives stole Wall Street. Well, I, you know, we get some politics in here today, which is... Uh, oh, which I'm, is I'm always going there. Yeah, well, that's all right. You know, and it's, it's funny, uh, too. I had an email question from a, a listener the other day because we do a feature called The Inbox where I get to... Oh, it's kind of like an audio blog. And they said, well, you know, we always hear about John Mellencamp and Jackson Brown and most recently Hart getting on the GOP for using their songs. And he says, uh, Paul, do you know of any Republican rockers? And boy, we really, we had to dig pretty deep. Uh, I guess uh, Ted Nugent, of course, uh, comes to mind. Boy, he's, he's way out there, isn't he? Well, he's a, you know, I know Ted, and he's a, he's, he's a good fella, and, uh, but he's extreme in his views, you know, uh, and I think that's okay. Uh, but uh, 
I uh, didn't uh, ask McCain not to use my songs. I just pointed out, we sent a letter and pointed out that Mellencamp is a liberal. Uh, he has a liberal agenda. Uh, he writes uh, uh, liberal songs. And you are pushing a conservative agenda. Do you think it makes much sense that the two are, do you think that's going to work for you? And mm -hmm. uh, put to them like that, they immediately quit using the songs. And besides, John Edwards was using the song at the time. Uh, uh, Hillary Clinton was using the song at the time. And Barack Obama was using the song at the time. So you have three liberal candidates, three Democratic candidates using the song. And then John McCain's using it. It just didn't make any sense to us. And so uh, we asked him if he thought it was a good idea. And uh, they apparently didn't think it was such a good idea. Was it Our Country? I forget. Was that the song they were using? They were using Our Country and uh, I think Pink Houses and Small Town. Mm. So mm. they were using three different songs. Wouldn't Wouldn't Chevy have had something to say about Our Country, or is is that? No, Chevy. Uh, you know, they they just leasing the song uh, 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 for this uh, for the last couple three years. Now the yeah. song, the song is the song, uh, and uh, no, they they have. No, they have no control over that. Yeah. You did, did you, um, did I read this right in Rolling Stone that you've got, you kind of felt in a way that letting Chevy use that song and play it, you know, eight times a football game was in some way torpedoed your last album, did you feel like? Well, I really had no idea that, uh, you know, I didn't, I, I had never done that before, so I didn't really know what I was getting into. And, and it was my own fault. This wasn't Chevrolet's fault. It was my fault. I asked the guy, well, how much are you guys going to play this thing? I asked, you know, I asked him directly, and he said, this song will get played more than any hit record that you've ever had. And I laughed at him. I said, I, you know, I, yeah, sure. He wasn't kidding. Yeah. No, no, he wasn't kidding. We'll be right back with more of Paul Mendenhall's interview with John Mellencamp on WTTS In Conversation with support from Technology Recyclers. What happens to your obsolete electronics? It's estimated that only 18% of all electronic waste is properly recycled globally. This harms the environment, wastes natural resources, and pollutes our landfills. You should be recycling your computers and electronics. Technology Recyclers has the solution. With their R2 certification, they guarantee 100% data destruction. Their state-of-the-art shredding and separation system ensures nothing ends up in landfills. They're Hoosier veteran-owned and always free to you and your company. Visit Technology Recyclers on the web. We now return to WTTS In Conversation with John Mellencamp. We started to get, get on this point here a few minutes ago about life, death, love, and freedom. And it seems to me like, uh, and, and you say it, it, it's not necessarily a dark album, but there is a, a little preoccupation with mortality. I mean, are you, do you think about that a lot? Well, I'll, I'll give you a good example. Uh, the first song is a song called uh, Life is Short, Even in Its Longest Days. That song originally was written for the, uh, the Ghost Brothers of Darkland County, which is a uh, musical I'm working on with Steve King for the last seven years. And it reflects, I could have said, to really, you know, talk about what I w was talking about was this country. You know, uh, if you just replace the word we with I, you get, it, it just makes perfect sense, you know, that, that uh, we, uh, uh, I can't remember the lyrics of these songs right now, <laughs> but, but uh, uh, it's, it's basically dealing with the state of this country at this time, and I just personalized it by saying I. Uh, and am I personally, um, I think that all of us uh, in our uh, uh, most adult moments uh, realize that we're not going to be here forever. And how are you going to deal with that? Mm -hmm. You know, how, how, how are we going to deal with that? Uh, it didn't seem to be much of a problem at 23. Uh, but at 56, you know, the, the, the thought does pop into your mind that you're more than half done. I'm not middle-aged. Yeah. You know, if I was middle-aged, I'd live to be 106. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you, you, those things. And then plus, yeah. if you listen to the Great American Songbook, mortality was a huge topic amongst the songs written in America in the 40s and the 30s and, uh, and uh, in the 50s. It's now that songs are written about nothing mm -hmm. about you know light relationships that these songs seem so out of place but in fact these songs are very much in place with the history of this country this is once again kind of 
um, bounce around. Well, I'll just go back to the mortality thing here for a second. Um, obviously, you have one one habit that you hang on to, but um, from what I gather, you you I mean, obviously you're in good shape. You, you're doing some some healthy things besides the smoking, right? Well, I'm good at smoking. No, no. <laughs> I, don't, I don't I don't deny that. Uh-huh. Uh, but you're not like a, a known uh, uh, druggy boozer type of. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't taken drugs since 1970. I haven't been drunk since 1970. When I went to I went to college down in Vincennes, in Indiana, and uh, I got drunk one night and got in a, in a in stone one night and got in a big fight with a guy in a bar and got my ass beat and I said I had real long hair and I just said that's it with this you know I just I just can't afford to every time I go out get in a fist fight with some guy so uh, yeah because I was a very bad uh, drunk you know loud mouth you know let's find the biggest guy and fight him <laughs> type of attitude so I'm done with that <laughs> yeah well, that's good. I guess your uh, your painting and your music uh, still serves as as uh, a release for you. Then, um, oh yeah, this is once again random, and I apologize for this because I'm just getting down to some things that I, I just had to ask you. Um, your videos, love your videos. I mean, I really enjoy that. Now, I'm I'm personally, I know you're not much one to look back, but I personally am. I get nostalgic about the era when MTV was flying high when. Uh, you know, Jack and Diane was was on there, and Pink House is one of my favorite all time videos. You ever uh, you ever started to see that era pass? I mean, it was that was kind of interesting. Well, when we started seeing music, and uh, as opposed to just hearing music, even though it helped a lot of people's careers, I think it was bad for the music when we started seeing the pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I know what you said. There was quite an excitement. Uh, during that time period about music. Music was eclipsing everything else in this country and MTV was huge and the music was huge. But uh, in the long run, I'm not sure it was good for the music. Part of being a songwriter and being a, a music fan, which I am, music gives people an opportunity to dream. And I think that that's an important opportunity that everybody should take, those moments when you can dream about what's being said in the song or the fact that your mind is relaxed uh, through the music. And uh, I think that's why so many people like music, is because it gives their a chance to relax. It gives their brain a, a chance to shut down and, and emotionally be involved with what's being said or emotionally being involved with the beat of the song or whatever it is they're responding to. Sure, I mean, you know, uh, there were things about that that that, uh, I wish hadn't gone away. But really what happened, it was the invention of SoundScan that screwed everything up. Because you used to put an album out, or a single, and it would work its way up the charts. Mm -hmm. You would come in at 30, and then the next week you'd be at 26, and then the next week you'd be at 20, and you worked, and it was exciting, it was fun. Mm-hmm. But with the invention of SoundScan, it turned everything upside down. Your first week was your big week. What's fun about working a record to see it go from 7 to 12, and then from 12 to 14? Mm-hmm. There's nothing fun about that. And quite honestly, it doesn't really represent the number one record of the con- in the country. For that, for that moment, you know, guys our age, at, there was a time in the early 90s when we all of a sudden felt like, well, we're out of touch. I don't, I've never heard this record, and it's number, the number one record in the country. Well, SoundScan also uh, re-evaluated with Billboard. The reason I know this is because Tim White was one of my best friends, and he was the editor of Billboard, and he died a few years ago, and Tim and I used to talk about this. <clears throat> with SoundScan, they said, well, it's not right that if, you, if your record is played in New York City, it counts as one spin. And if it's played in Bloomington, it counts as one spin. But there's so many more potential listeners in New York as opposed to Bloomington. So what happened? They reevaluated that a spin in New York was more valuable than a spin in Bloomington. Ah, well, the record company's not being total idiots. Said, well, we don't really have to think about Bloomington anymore. We only have to worry about New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, San Francisco, and you name the biggest cities in the countries, which is what they did. And then those records would become number one records, and guys like us sitting in Bloomington would go, well, I've never heard that song before. How in the hell do I know? You know, I, 
I'm, I'm out of touch. Mm -hmm. I've lost touch. But what kind of records are played in these big top 40 stations? What, what was the format of those records? Urban. So, you know, these huge urban... I mean, rap music was about to die. It was just about on its last leg until SoundScan. And then it reinvigorated. And Tim told me, he said, I don't want to buy this sound scan. I don't want to do it because it's going to change music the way that we know. And he knew it. Mm -hmm. And uh, But he had to buy it because he was afraid that another somebody else would buy a sound scan and they would become the premier magazine and Billboard wouldn't be. Yeah. And so that's the reason he bought it. And he was right. His prediction was right that... Uh, you know, record companies will gravitate to the big cities and not care about the secondary markets or, or the small towns. And uh, uh, we and he he said there will be. I remember him telling me there will be number one records in the country under the system that nobody's ever heard. Now everybody knew Hurt So Good when it was number mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. Everybody knew Small Town because it worked its way up the charts. So the combination of all these things happening really turned the record business upside down. And quite honestly, with the invention of CDs and SoundScan, we're in the music business. There was a, a really cool thing that, do uh, you mind if I join you here? Uh, yesterday, I think it was, Billboard released their uh, top 100 singles of all time, which you have a couple of them in there. I'm not sure what number, but your number one was the twist. I mean, this is all based on Billboard methodology. It's, it's, it's all, it's, you know, it. It's it's all I, I hate these things because this it's just based on on uh, it's just a math problem, you know. This this equals that and that equals that. It has nothing to do with people's taste or what people really liked, and so you know I, I, I and that's nothing about our culture. I hate all these lists. I, I hate all these lists. You know, uh, who's your favorite actress or what mm -hmm. reason? I just I think it's just all bullshit. You know, that's not what people that you know. Listen, when, a, when, a, when, a, when you hear a radio station giving away money, they're out of ideas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Listen to that's our station and win cash. That's, that's you guys true. are out of ideas, mm -hmm. you know. So, and, and, and that's our culture, though, because you see it everywhere you go. I mean, I'm all over the country all the time, and I see billboards win a million dollars on, you know, WJ, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, man, we're out of ideas. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. down to the lowest common denominator. Give them some money. <laughs> Listen to our station and you can get money. <laughs> well, we're we're giving away Mellencamp tickets. Good. Yeah, go. yeah. And I hope you don't music. <laughs> I hope you don't mind think any disrespect by my sometimes referring to you as your last name. I guess I do that on the air quite a bit. It's kind of a you know, one name will do it and it's uh, a name that's evolved uh, through the years too. And uh, you know, I never uh, I don't hear too much about and it's just probably because I haven't checked out, you know, done any research on it. But your folks down in Seymour and, and uh, your, your early life, I mean, I know a lot about your uh, successful adult life. But uh, growing up in Seymour, uh, what, what kind of a – you said you were a rabble-rouser looking for the biggest guy to fight in 1970. Were you always kind of that way? Well, you know, I don't know that I said I was a rabble-rouser. I think <laughs> you said I was a yeah. rabble-rouser. Uh, no, I was just like any other kid growing up in a, in a small town. You know, there's not much to do in the evening, settle low scores. That's just about all there was to do. Uh, I've written songs about, uh, you know, I'm not much of a nostalgic guy, I've got to say. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not very nostalgic. I keep trying to pull you back here, but I know you're not. I'm not very nostalgic. Uh, although I have to say that I enjoyed uh, growing up in Seymour, Indiana. I had a great time, uh, you know, there was guitars, motorcycles, and girls. What else could a guy want <laughs> at 18 years old? And, you know, my goal at that time was to have enough money to have a, a nice stereo and a bunch of records to play on the stereo and have a motorcycle. And if I had that and, you know, could put a little bit of food on the table and had a little bit of change jingling around in my pocket, that's all I wanted. That's all I expected out of life. Uh, and... Uh, you know, when I started making records, I really had no vision that I would be making records, you know, what, 35 years later. It never even dawned on me. People just didn't do that back mm, then. No. You know, it just was unheard of and uh, was almost uh, an oxymoron that, that somebody would be making rock records at, uh, at, uh, in their 60s and 50s. It just was like, what? Yeah. And uh, fatherhood, what would you think if... Uh, well, see, which son is it that, that has actually joined you on stage and, and played guitar? Uh, Speck is uh, my 13-year-old son who uh, shows an interest in music and uh, and in art. 
And uh, HUD is uh, my 14-year-old son who is uh, more athletic and, uh, you know, is a kind of an outdoorsman type of kid. You know, he likes to hunt and he likes to sail and he likes to fish and he likes to camp out and, mm-hmm. and he likes to play football and he likes to box and he likes, you know, he, so he's, he's involved in a lot of sporting activities where Speck is involved in that, but his passion really seems to be it. 13 who knows at 13 Mm -hmm. uh but he's a better guitar player at 13 than i was i'll tell you that Mm -hmm. when did you pick it up oh you know 11 yeah something like that my brother had an acoustic guitar that laid around the house and he took some lessons uh it was just a nylon string guitar and that you know i shared a room with him so the guitar was always in the corner and he just quit playing it, so I thought, well, mm-hmm. he was my older brother. He's like four years older than me, so uh, he just quit playing it, so I just started playing it and uh, found that uh, I had a certain knack for melody, you know, and uh, so that's how I started uh, writing songs and stuff. You know, when I got my first record deal, though, I was a singer. I wasn't really a songwriter. I I didn't really see myself as a songwriter. I saw yeah. myself as a singer in, you know, and uh how were you discovering uh i went to uh new york in 1970 something or another i can't remember the early 70s and i dropped off a uh a tape that i had made and uh, a couple more trips back and forth with different record companies and different managers and uh and then one day i got a phone call that said uh you know i had just gotten back from new york i had just driven back from new york and I was sitting in my little apartment in Seymour, and I got a phone call. And the guy says, hey, we want you to come, and we want to talk to you about managing you. And, uh, and uh, that's how the whole Johnny Cougar thing started. And uh, I went back to New York, and it was the first time that anybody had paid for my plane ticket. I had never been on an airplane before. And the guy flew me to New York, and it was like, wow. And he paid for my hotel room. I didn't have any money, you know. I said, well, I can't come here. You got no money. And he... Uh, he said, oh, we'll, we'll take care of all that. And, uh, uh, you know, being a, from a small town, living in a small town in Indiana, the fact that anybody would do that for me uh, was uh, quite surprising, seeing how I had my entire apartment uh, at the time uh, papered in rejection notices from <sighs> hundreds of different record companies. And back then there were literally hundreds of record companies and mm-hmm. places to make records, and I had been rejected from every one of them at least three or four times. Do you, do you ever remember playing the crump? Did you actually play the crump? Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, that same manager uh, came here to Indiana and put together a small bunch of dates for me to play in. Uh, I played at the uh, Indiana Theater, I think, in Terre Haute or the Holman Center. Or so. I, I don't. Anyway, he put together a whole bunch of little small theaters, and we played in Louisville, and we played in Terre Haute, and we played in Toledo, and uh, we did. Uh, this little tour of these of theaters, and uh, we we were horrible. <laughs> um, we were terrible. Uh, uh, you know, we didn't have any songs to sing. <laughs> you know, it was a real problem. We had one record, and it was horrible, and most of it was cover songs. So we really didn't have anything to play. Uh, and plus, uh, you know, I was like 22 years old, and uh, really didn't have any idea how to run a band. I'd only ever been in a band that you know, did cover songs. So, you know, that's the thing. Most people think that, oh, I got a record deal, the deal's over. No, it's just starting. Yeah. You just got your foot in the door. But being a young guy, I thought, oh, we've, you know, we've accomplished it. We're making a record. No, you're just starting. Yeah. You're just starting. You seen the crump lately? Uh, no, I haven't. But uh, some people went down there, and I think that, uh, I think it's going to be uh, an interesting uh, thing. I, my brother, who worked for me at the time, uh, sent me an email that, and he said that uh, that night that we were going to play the crump that they used to show the, uh, movies in there and the guy uh, there was a screen and the movie screen was down he said well we can't move the movie screen and Ted was in there with uh, with what little road crew I had and there wasn't any room to set our equipment up in front of that screen and Ted said uh, I, I said well there was I don't remember a screen he said yeah I gave the guy $200 and all of a sudden the screen disappeared <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, you've, uh, I guess as we, we kind of wind down here, you've, you've championed a lot of causes. I mean, you've been involved with uh, farm aid for a long time. Uh, you've always looked out for the, the little man, so to speak, the guy that's in labor. 
I'm going to forget a question that is personally very important to me, and I'm going to, I'm going to come back to your altruism here in a second. But uh, your videos, man, I mean, you had some great people in those videos. I mean, some real, they, they weren't glamorous people. Where did you find these people? I, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, all, all through the John Mellencamp video, all the videos I can think of, you've had some very, um, I, I, would, I wouldn't say freak show because I'm not that kind of a, a guy. But, you know, some unusual looking characters. Where, where do you, how do you find these people? They live in Bloomington. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want me to say? They're not hard to find. They're everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But you always seem to seek them out, sort of. Not really. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about specifically. Uh, if you had a specific video when you were asking me about, I could tell you where somebody came from. Oh, I could, uh, I could start with, uh, I could do... Uh, Pink houses. I could do uh, uh, Key West uh, intermezzo. Yeah, Key West was a, it was a different thing. Uh, Key West was uh, was shot in Los Angeles and uh, by a big time, uh, a huge uh, video director. And uh, I basically uh, showed up and just sang in that. Uh, the only choice I made during that video was that choice of Matthew McConaughey, who at the time was an unknown actor. And uh, and Karen Alexander, who uh, was a friend of Elaine, so that was the only two people that I picked uh, to be in that video. Uh, and I had just met Matthew because he was such a big fan, and whenever I was playing, he was always there. But at the time, you know, he he hadn't even he I think he'd made one movie. Now he's made like sixty movies, you know. So all of those folks were chosen uh, by the video director. And just, just one more example would be like pink houses, and I think of the fellow that was sitting on the front porch with the interstate in his yard, and I think about the guy with a straw hat that was dancing around. Those were just local people. Well, uh, the, guy, the, 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 the guy that was sitting on his front porch was a, a guy, a black guy with blue eyes who lived in Austin, Indiana, and uh, he's since died. And the guy at the straw hat was actually the mayor of Austin, Indiana. <laughs> then that make you feel comfortable knowing that guy was the mayor yeah. of the, of the town. I, yeah. he, he was the mayor of of, uh, of Austin, Indiana. Yeah. Well, back to your. We were heading down this path, and, and uh, getting ready to wrap it up here. But just back to to what's most important to you right now. I mean, you've been you've been down a lot of roads with a lot of different causes. Farm Aid. Elaine's very uh, involved with the Tibetan uh, Center here in Bloomington. Uh, why, what's top on your agenda right now as far as, uh, say, types of uh, organizations or people you're reaching out to? Well, right now it's youth football. Uh, HUD and SPEC are homeschooled, and it's perplexing to me that I pay taxes, but my kids can't pl play at a public school. You know, in Seymour, when, when we were kids, uh, the parochial kids, uh, Catholic and Lutheran kids, all uh, played for the public school. Uh, so there would be kids coming from uh, the Lutheran school to the junior high, the public junior high, and they were on the football team. But Bloomington didn't allow that, which I think is weird and wacky, because I pay taxes. How about all these kids that go to Lighthouse and all these kids that go to these other schools around town, and they don't have any outlet for athletics because, you know, the school is too small or, uh, uh, you know, the school doesn't have the money. But we still pay the same taxes as the people who go to the public schools, but our kids aren't allowed to participate in, in the athletic program, which I think is, is wrong. So this year uh, we've... Uh, sponsored and been involved with a, uh, a youth football league from kids, uh, I think it's 13 to 15, and on HUD's team, uh, HUD and Specs team, you know, we got some really great football players from North uh, who don't want to participate in that particular program, and we've got some kids from Lighthouse, and we've got some homeschooled kids on our team, and um, so I've been really involved in that, and uh, I've been involved with a, a little bit with this boxing thing that's been going that that's happening this Sunday. Bloomington has had no boxing in its community. I don't know. I've never heard of it here. But you know, if you want to go see uh, uh, USA Boxing is a is an organization. It's the Pre Olympics. That if you like, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, Oscar De La Hoya boxed in the USA program, and then he went to, and then he went to Golden Gloves. So, you know, we're helping uh, 
uh, a guy from Indianapolis put on a, uh, a boxing, USA boxing match here this Sunday. And uh, so, you know, small community things. Uh, and of course, we have Farm Aid coming up uh, the 20 something or another at the end of this month in Boston. Oh, Boston. And it's in Boston. Yeah, it was in New York last year. Mm -hmm. And we have, uh, you know, the, the founding guys, and we have Kenny Chesney, and we have uh, Steve Earle, and uh, so we have an, a nice lineup this year uh, to play in Boston. And uh, this thing that we're doing at the Crump, uh, whatever tickets we sell, the money's going to go for flood relief uh, for the people in that town, because that town got flooded. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're going to try to... Uh, raise a little bit of money it probably won't be too much but it would raise a little bit of money and and donate to those people so you know there's all kind of uh charitable work going on uh in one capacity or another thing we're trying to open up an art gallery here in bloomington and donate all the money that we sell from whatever paintings we sell uh to the town of bloomington to buy art to put on the streets in bloomington uh and so we've had a little bit of trouble with the city about that, but those problems have all seemed to be worked out. So now if people just quit graffiti on my building, I'd be happy. Stop that crap. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't get that. I mean, you know, these young kids say, well, I, the, the people, and I get, okay, I'm an artist. I, yeah, I get it. But, you know, what if I came to your house and I just graffitied on your car? Are you talking about the, the pavilion? No, no, I'm, I, I'm talking about an art. Uh, I have a building on uh, Walnut that we're going to have a turn into an art gallery. And we've been having trouble with the city with some permits. So uh, now that those problems are, but while the building was sitting there, a bunch of kids and numerous times graffitied all over the building. Mm -hmm. So I had to go back and repaint the building and then they did it again. And, mm -hmm. Well, listen, John, I, I've taken up an hour of your time here and I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. It's been a great opportunity for me as a, and I mean this most sincerely, a, a lifelong uh, extreme fan of your music. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. I thank you for the music and I thank you for your time. This has been WTTS In Conversation with support from Technology Recyclers. Subscribe to this podcast and find more information at WTTSFM.com. I'm Matt Pelser. Thanks for listening. <laughs>